What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 133 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders, find out how they have learned to lead with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike, and it is my honor to be on this journey with you as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the space and the place that God has put us. Have you ever wondered what it takes to be a leader that others want to win for? Well, today you are in for a fun time sitting down with not only a former Major League Baseball manager, but a World Series winning baseball manager, Ned Yost. Yost played six seasons in the MLB for three different teams, served as an assistant coach, bullpen coach, third base coach for many seasons for the Atlanta Braves, mostly during that run under the legendary Bobby Cox. But in May 2010, he was named the manager of the Kansas City Royals. And before he retired in 2019, he led them to the American League Championship and also their first World Series title, in 30 years. His stories, his insights from playing with some of the greats, managing against and alongside some of the greats is amazing. And I think what you're going to hear is his heart for the players that he led. And I think you are going to see why he was a leader that his players wanted to win for. So I don't know if you're a baseball fan or not. How can you not be a baseball fan? But I will tell you this. There are some leadership lessons tucked in this conversation that I think you're going to enjoy. I had never really ever spent any lengthy time with Coach Yost until this call. And I tell you what. I fell in love with the guy. He since has come and done a banquet for us at the high school that I work with and just is a down-to-earth, real-deal guy whose faith is a huge part of his journey. So I want you to do me a favor, and I want you to pull up a chair, and I want you to listen in to not only a major league manager, but a manager who led his team to the biggest title in professional baseball, and that's the World Series championship. You are going to love Ned Yost. So pull up a chair and buckle in for a great conversation with Ned Yost. Well, Coach Yost, thank you so much for taking time to join me on this episode. It's an honor to have you, fella. Well, thank you. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to to talk to you and, um, you know, go a little bit, uh, you know, go over my career a little bit because, you know, I think when, uh, I retired, uh, was the first time I really had a chance to sit back and kind of realize some of the neat stuff that we did. And that I was quite frankly, a little shocked, uh, you know, to realize at the end of my career, I'd been to the world series eight times and two time world champion and seven all-star games. And, the opportunity to manage them twice major league all-star games and win them both. And, uh, you know, one of the uh, things I was real, uh, proud of is that I've had the opportunity to meet and talk with five different presidents. And mm. I thought that was really, uh, cool. So, you know, baseball has uh, taken me on a wonderful journey. Um, it was a tough journey, uh, you know, for not only me, but for my family too. And, uh, but, uh, you know, it was, it was a wonderful journey. You know, you, you go back and you, you get drafted and you do your years in the minor leagues, never made it as a player. And then you end up with the Braves, I believe in the bullpen, correct? Your bullpen no. coach. So what was no, your, where, what was your step there between playing and, and ended up with the Braves? I played six and a half, almost seven years in the big leagues. Uh, ah. So I played with Milwaukee, Texas, and Montreal. Um, my first year in the big leagues was 1980. Uh, so it took me a little while to get there. 
you know, uh, you know, like six years, but, yep. you know, was there in 80, uh, spent, um, probably almost three months there was there a month and a half or two months. And, uh, uh let's see, April, May, yeah, about six weeks because I got set down and, uh, we were in Milwaukee, my wife and I packed our car and we were going to Vancouver, Canada, oh, which was goodness. the AAA team. Right. So we drove and the first night we drove like 10 hours, 12 hours, whatever it was. And, we pulled into Butte, Montana, and we turned the radio on. There was no satellite radio or anything back at that time. So we turned the radio on, and it said the ash cloud would be at Butte uh, sometime in the morning. And I looked at my wife. I said, what's an ash cloud? Right? Well, we woke up the next day. We had no idea that Mount St. Helens had blown up. Oh my and gosh. we were right in the middle of that. We were stuck in Butte, Montana for four days. They had closed everything. And there was six inches of ash. It looked like snow out there. And we were stuck in the hotel for, uh, you know, for, like I say, four days before we had to backtrack all the way, you know, four or five hours and go up to Alberta, Canada to get to, uh, to get to, um, um, Vancouver. But, uh, that was, that was the start of my big league career in 1981. We, you know, we were there, we went on strike 82. We went to the world series. Um, and 83, I played, with Milwaukee, 84 with Texas and parts of 85 with Montreal. So, you know, I got to the point going into spring training in 1986 where uh, I was with Montreal, went through spring training and thought I did okay. And at the end of spring training, I got called in and got released. You know, they were going to go a different direction. I'm like, okay, you know, I'm 31, 32 years old and uh, you know, I, I don't want to bounce around between AAA and the big yeah. leagues. I've got a wife and I got kids. I'm going to have to go home and figure something out. You know, I went to junior college for two years, but you know, my, my whole focus was playing baseball. It wasn't going to school, you know? So, um, you know, I had no, basically a high school education. You no, know, what am I going to do? I got home and I was home about two and a half weeks and I was gone. My wife got a phone call. I got home and she said, uh, Hey, uh, you got a phone call today. And I said, from who? She goes, well, uh, H Hank Aaron, Hank Aaron <laughs> called. And I'm like, okay. All right. You know, which one of my friends is messing exactly. with me? Right? Well, the next day the phone rings again, it was Hank Aaron. You know, Hank was the farm director for the mm -hmm. Atlanta Braves at that time. And he said, look, we're, we're looking for a veteran catcher to go to Greenville, South Carolina to our double a team. We've got some really nice young prospects there and really nice pitching prospects. And we want a veteran catcher to work with them. Would you be interested? And I'm like, well, you know, the only thing I really know is baseball. So, you know, let me give, you know, coaching a try and see if I, you know, if I'm going to enjoy it, it's not that far away. It was like six hours from Jackson where we lived at that time. So, uh, or seven hours. So I'm like, okay, I'll give it a try. I went to Greenville. Well, Come to find out the young prospects that they had were Tommy Glavin, mm. uh, Pete Smith, uh, Tommy Green, Kent Merker, Jeff Blauser was on that team, Ronnie Gant, Mark Lemke, David Justice. I mean, it was the whole yep. core of the young uh, players that were going to, you know, come to the big leagues and, and bring championship after championship, division championship there. So, of course, I absolutely loved it. I did that two years, uh, bouncing between AA and AAA with those young players. Uh, and, and it was 86, 87, 88. I told them, look, I want to, I want to manage. So they, uh, they gave me my own team, Sumter, South Carolina, yeah. and, uh, managed there for three years before, uh, Bobby Cox called and offered me the bullpen coach job in, uh, 91. How did your years as a player not living in the bigs the whole time? And you did the bouncing around. How did that help you? working with these young men on their way up? How did that experience shape you to become that manager? Well, you know, people, I, I never really thought about this a whole lot until my first uh, manager's uh, interview for a major league manager's job. And Doug Melvin was the, the GM at that time. And uh, he had asked me, he said, who were your mentors? Mm. And I thought, oh, well, I immediately knew who my three mentors were, but I've never thought about it. Wow. And I told them Ted Simmons, Bobby Cox, and Dale Earnhardt. 
Now, Teddy Simmons, when I was in Milwaukee, uh, I played in 80, 81, and the, the winner of 80 and 81, the Brewers made a trade with the St. Louis Cardinals, and they got Ted Simmons, Pete Vukovic, and Raleigh Fingers in a trade. So Teddy came over. 81 was a strike year, and Teddy was our player rep, so he was so involved with all that. I mean, I backed him up. We, you know, we played like two months and then took three months off and then played two months at the end. So I didn't really get to know Teddy. I didn't, Mm. I didn't really, you know, uh, you know, I didn't really get to understand who he was or get to really, really know him. And in spring training, uh, in, in 1982, he came up to me, uh, after like two weeks and he goes, uh, Hey, I want to talk to you tomorrow. So I'm like, Okay. I mean, it was at the end of the day, he goes, be here at seven o'clock. I'm like, okay. All right. So I went home thinking, what does he want to talk to me about? You know, what, what could he possibly want to this guy? You know, I don't really know him that well, even though we were teammates and what could he possibly want to talk to me about? So the next day I show up at, you know, seven o'clock and he's sitting there at his locker and I sit down and he says, look, he says, I've had some great people teach me this game of baseball the the mental side of this game understand what this game's all about and he said if you want he said i feel like it's my time to give back Mm. and it's my time to teach you if you're interested so i will teach you this game if you are interested and i'm like well yeah sure i'm interested but in the back of my mind i'm like what can he teach me you know i played baseball my whole life i understand what this game's about but i told him yeah he goes, all right, every day I will have something for you. So I'm like, okay. Well, for the next two and a half years, wow. Dude, Teddy Simmons had something for me every single day. And we would sit and talk sometimes for three and four and five hours, sometimes after the game for three hours on what happened during the game. Teddy was the one that gave me my knowledge of the game. Teddy, when we sat down here, I'm a backup catcher. He hands me a sheet of paper and there was a baseball diamond on it. And he said, make copies of this. He says, because I want you to write down every play that you can think of starting with nobody on base hit to left field. And I want you to diagram where every player on the field goes. And I want it to, I want it to be from uh, nobody on base at the left to bases loaded, you know, two outs. And where where everybody's going, where every throw's going, where everybody's supposed to be lined up. And I'm like, all right. He goes, see what this is? Is this is anatomy? And I said, anatomy. And he said, as a doctor, the first thing, if you want to be a doctor, the first thing you have to know is anatomy. He said, if you want to play baseball, this is your anatomy. You have to know as a catcher where every player on the field is supposed to be if you're going to be the leader of that team on on any given day. You have to understand and you have to be able to see when a situation comes, is everybody in the right spot and direct Mm -hmm. people where they need to be. So that's where it started with drawing and talking about the cutoff plays and then infield defense and outfield alignment and the interdiamond defense, bunt plays, how to set up. I mean, it, it was numerous hours. So with Teddy's, with Teddy's influence and Teddy's taking the time to teach me the game, I mean, it was like what he taught me. I, I, it was unbelievable that I could think that I knew everything in the reality and the fact of the matter was I knew nothing. Wow. So he he brightened my whole horizons and set me up to be a coach at that time because now I'm understanding exactly how the game's played. Now I can take this knowledge and pass it on to younger players. Uh, it was, you know, it was phenomenal. And that's, you know, I'm part of the mentorship. Uh, you know, uh, he was the one that taught me the game. So it was really, really important that I had that, that foundation. And Teddy's the one that gave it to me because without him, I would have never, we talked about eight world series. Forget about that. That wouldn't have happened. I would have mm-hmm. went to one with Teddy, uh, you know, with, without, you know, without Bobby, without Dale teaching you how to compete, there was a lot of different, there was a lot of different pieces to the puzzle 
that God kind of put together for me that I didn't understand at the time, you know, that, that this was happening, but this was preparing me for something greater down the road. That, that is such a great picture coach, because so many times we look at life, but we don't see the whole picture. We always talk about it in the rearview mirror. We look back and we go, Oh, so that's why that happened. And that's why I ended up with Ted Simmons. And he, he taught me all this. What were the lessons you learned from Bobby Cox? What were some of your takeaways from a guy who didn't consider himself a teacher? He didn't consider himself. He was just a, he was just a manager of a baseball team who happened to have a lot of good players is mostly how you would hear Bobby describe himself. What were your takeaways from him that helped you be a manager one day? Well, I was with Bobby for 12 years mm. and I made a point when I got, when I got hired to be the bullpen coach, I was going to watch and I was going to listen and I was going to soak in everything that he did. Bobby was a tremendous leader. Yeah. Bobby was a tremendous baseball manager. Bobby was the smartest person. You know, they told me one time when I, I started my manager career that if you want to, if you want to be successful in a field, you look at the most successful person in that field and do everything as he does. Yep. And you will be as successful. Well, I thought, okay, that's a great concept. I'm nowhere near as smart as Bobby. I'm nowhere near as uh, he, 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 the person that Bobby is. So Bobby taught me how to manage a game, watching Bobby. Eight years in the bullpen, four years as a third base coach. Now we talk about God putting pieces together. If Hank Aaron hadn't have called and given me the opportunity to go to Atlanta and Bobby giving me the opportunity to be the bullpen coach for eight years. I caught every side session that Greg Maddox, John Smoltz, Tommy Glavin, all the great pitchers. I caught every side session they threw for eight years. So I got to understand pitching. I got to be able to talk to three hall of famers, and, and get to know exactly what made them successful. I watched how Bobby would handle his pitching, uh, and that set me up for down the road on how to be a better manager. I watched how Bobby handled a multitude of different uh, situations in terms of discipline system, you know, uh, discipline um, areas where he had to provide discipline for teams, you know, guys that were struggling, superstars, you know, how, how long do you stay with them? How do you handle this situation? How do you handle that situation? But most of all, what struck me more, I think, than how he handled the players, because the players absolutely loved him. They would, you know, you could see that, that Bobby had their back. Bobby was totally supportive on the outside. But if they needed their rear end chewed off, Bobby would chew it off. I mean, he would, Bobby would let them, he could, he could do it with the best of them, but they always knew that it was in their best interest. And I was always amazed to, you know, to watch his ability to do that. But more than anything, it was the way that he treated people that weren't in the game, the people that he uh, would walk down the tunnel uh, and say hi to and make them feel great. He knew all their names. He would stop and talk to them and give them, you know, the time of day. Um, the people in the parking lot, Bobby, you know, would just made him feel good every time he saw him. The, uh, you know, the clubhouse kids, the press, he was, he always made them feel like they were special. And I think more than anything, Bobby taught me how to manage a game. Yes, but how to manage people more yeah. and how to, how to have that personality, uh, you know, that, uh, that, you know, shows that, Hey, you know, you may be the one in charge, but you better, you better understand that all these people are here helping you and you better, you better uh, have some appreciation for it. And Bobby always did. It's so funny. Uh, a really, really good friend of mine, Jack Llewellyn, who was back with you guys during that time, the sports psychologist, Jack was around right. those days with Bobby. He would, he talked all the time. He said, Bobby had such a way of making you feel so good about yourself yeah. and he yeah. did it with everybody it's exactly what he said he did it with everyone just the players but he yeah. said guys would change everything to play for bobby cox everybody everything. wanted to play for him yeah every they were dying to play for him and it was you know things like when i was coaching third base i'd get a guy thrown out by 20 feet uh you know uh, 20 feet and i go back in the dugout i'd be upset with myself and bobby would walk by and he goes ned you had to do that i'd have done that too 
You know, he just made you feel good about it. It wasn't like, hey, what are you sending them for? And you go, no, you had to, yeah, you had to do that. I'd have sent them too. I'd have, I'd have been in the same spot. That was a great, that was a great send, you know, and it was just stuff like that, that he always, uh, you know, he always had the ability to uh, make you feel good. And, and I'll tell you a little story about Bobby. We were in St. Louis and we were, we were playing the Cardinals and Mike Stanton was on the mound. And there was two outs and we had a one run lead runner at second and third and a ground ball hit the first. Well, Stanton was too slow to cover first. So he hesitated just enough, went over there. The runner was safe. Of course, the tying run scored. And because Stanton got mad at himself and pouted for a second, the winning run came around and scored. So now Stanton standing there with the ball in his hat and we're like, you know, Ground ball, the first game's over. We lose. How yep. does that happen? Yep. Right? Well, Bobby was a guy that um, didn't take those losses well. And, you know, and I mean, that <laughs> you'd walk in the you'd walk in the locker room and there'd be stuff smashing against the wall, and Bobby'd be screaming and yelling in his office, and we're just all sitting there. And all of a sudden, the door flies open, and the manager's office had real thin walls, so you could hear it all. Right, so he opens up the door and he comes out and he screams, "Stanton, get in here!" So Stanton goes walking into the locker room, bam, the door shuts, right? So we're all sitting there trying to hear. So a minute goes by, two minutes goes by, three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, going on 15 minutes, and we don't hear nothing. All of a sudden, door opens up and Stanton walks out. So next day, we're all in the bullpen, and we're all, all the bullpen guys are like, <laughs> like Stanton, what happened? He goes, oh, man. He goes, I went in there. He slammed the door. He told me to sit down and I'm just waiting for him to, I thought he was going to beat me up and I'm sitting there like this. I got my head down and I got my eyes closed and I'm waiting for him to start yelling at me. And I wait and I wait and I wait and nothing's happening. I look up and he's staring at me. Oh, I put my head back down and I said, I'm waiting for him to scream at me. I'm waiting. He said, this went on for like 10 minutes. And I looked up and finally, when I looked up after like 10, 12 minutes, he looked at me and he goes, Mike, don't ever let that happen again. And Stanton goes, trust me, Bobby, it'll never happen again. And my, and Bobby goes, okay, get out of here. But the thing that Bobby could do could be so mad at you one second, but within an hour, it was like nothing ever happened. He had the ability to let go and forget, um, you know, and I think that was a great lesson that I learned. I think another great lesson that I learned is Bobby understood that, this is an extremely hard game to play. Mm. And these players are so talented. They make it look easy, but there's nothing easy about it. Mm. And the only thing that you can ask from your players day in and day out is that they go and they give you 100% of their effort every day. That's it. He didn't care if you went 0 for 4. Didn't care if you went 4 for 4. If you could look yourself in the mirror at the end of the day and say, I gave my best effort, you've done your job for that day. And you know, I remember him telling me, you know, when these players look at their contract, they don't look at their contract and it says hit 40 home runs or strike out 200 or 20 wins. No, their contract basically says we'll pay you X amount of dollars for your very best effort every day. Mm. And and that's uh, you know, that that was that was true. And I think uh, all of this knowledge that I took helped me to understand how to treat players better because I think in my era players were different when I came up when Bobby came up you know we played on the street we played baseball from the time we woke up to the time we went to bed and we never locked doors and nobody had cell phones and nobody knew where anybody was and this generation of kids you know they grew up watching uh you know cable tv and cell phones and playing video games instead of playing baseball. it was a whole different environment and you had to understand how to reach a different generation of kids that grew up differently than you did when i grew up when i played in the big leagues if i messed up the, the manager would scream and yell at you man but you know you took it like a man and it's like no hard feelings you understood it was just you know you understood what it was you didn't you didn't you didn't pout you didn't you didn't get your feelings hurt you just went in and did better next time but you did that in this generation, guys would shrink, you know, it, it would really affect them for like two weeks. It would really hurt their feelings. So you had to find other ways to, uh, you know, other ways to get to them, to motivate them, to get them to understand 
what we're trying to do as a collective group. And uh, Bobby did that as uh, you know better than anybody. You know, I was at his retirement celebration um, that they had that year. I think it was in 2014 and down downtown. And um, he talked about the players. That's what I remember him talking about. The coaches and the players right. were why he won. I heard you at your retirement celebration talk about the players and talk about the great collection of individual, not that you were the winningest manager in Royals history, not that you have the highest winning percentage of any major league manager in postseason competition, but you talked about your players. Why is it so key that a leader or a coach loves those that they lead? Why is that so key? Because I heard that in your voice in that when you had the microphone standing in the middle of the field, why is that so key that you love the people you lead? I, I, I just think that uh, that's an important factor. And, you know, I think you've got to be honest with yourself uh, when you sit back and look at it and people say, oh, you're just, you know, you're just being humble. No, I'm, I'm not. I mean, Bobby hit it. We had a tremendous group of coaches that worked their hearts out every day to make these players better. Uh, we had a group of players that worked their hearts out every single day to get better. Uh, and it was, you know, I just think that it was a, a really neat relationship between the two. And, you know, my focus was, and I think, you know, I learned this from Bobby too, is that if a player messed up, nine and a half times out of 10, I would go to the coach and I would tell the coach, I want this addressed and let the coach address it with the player because a pitching coach has relationship with the pitchers An outfield coach has relationships with the outfields. I never wanted two messages set. So I wouldn't try to tell you something, not knowing what my coach had said. So I would never do that. I, if it was, you know, if it was a lack of hustle or if it was something like that, that I needed to address, we would address it, but I would let my coaches coach. And I think that was the most important thing. And that's what Bobby did. Bobby let us coach. We didn't have to walk in and say, Bobby, can I do this? Can we do this? No, you coached and you took care of the people that you were supposed to take care of. And, um, you know, you just get a group of guys that play so hard. And the, and the thing he, that is amazing, I don't think that people really understand, but when you look at a group of baseball players, you know, the majority of them are somewhere between 20 and 30 years old, and they're making a bunch of money. And you think, oh, these guys are, no, they're kids. Yeah. You know, they're kids and they want leadership. They want direction. They want structure. You know, they, they want, they want to be led. And when you lead them, they follow, uh, you know, for the most part. And, but you have to provide it for them. Mm. And we provided it in, in, you know, a bunch of different levels. Now, not only from Dave Moore, the GM, or not only from me, not only from their coaches, uh, you, you know, they just, uh, you know, they, they never, they never could, could do wrong as long as they were given everything that they had. And there were times where, you know, players like Mike Moustakas, I remember we laughed at him because he was hitting 160, wondering how much longer are you going to play me? I stink. And I'm like, dude, I believe you're going to be an all-star one day. So I'm going to play you until you don't think you can play anymore. Mm. And when you start to lose your confidence, that's when you're going to sit down. But because you are playing bad, you're not the one that's getting the fans riled up. It's me because I'm playing you. So don't worry about it. Let me take it. Right. I don't care about it. Let me, let me take it. You, you just go out and play. And of course, uh, you know, that's what happened. I always felt when I was a player, when I struggled, if a manager would just let me work through it, mm -hmm. I would have been fine. But back in those days, you never got the opportunity to work through it unless you were a superstar. Yeah. So, you know, it was, I had to go to the ballpark getting, you had to go two for four to get a chance to play the next day. And that's, it's a lot of pressure. And, and, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to put that on, on my players, but um, you know, it's just a group of guys. I think that you, you just let them know that you care for them. And, uh, you know, our organization was family first and uh, you know, there would be times where we would be on a losing streak and, you know, we'd lose four or five in a row and, uh, you know, I get them in the locker room and I'd get them all up close. I learned that screaming didn't work, mm, you know? Mm. So I would 
make them all stand up and come close in a huddle. And I would shock them by telling them, look, I'm so proud of you guys. Yeah, we've lost six in a row, but you guys are playing your hearts out. You guys keep this up. This is going to turn around quick. And I mean, stuff like that, instead of beating them down, it always built them back up and, uh, you know, just made them feel uh, like they were invincible. When you got the call in 2002 to become the manager of the Brewers, what was the what were the thoughts going through your mind when you gone when you thought, man, this is my opportunity? What 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 settled in on your shoulders when you took that role to step out to be that manager? What would you say? Well, well, I, I can remember um, you know being with being with the Braves for all those years and all those championships, uh, you know, and of course, you know, we talked about uh, the three mentors. We talked about uh, Bobby Cox and Teddy Simmons. Well, my third mentor was Dale Earnhardt and we were hunting buddies for 12, 15 years. And I remember we were in Texas and we were driving around hunting and Dale was at the end of his career. It was at the end of his contract and he had his own team at that time, but he was still driving with Richard Childress and, and good ranch. And he was, we were talking about his contract negotiation. And I said, why, why don't you just, why don't you just go drive for yourself? I mean, you've got this team set up DEI. I mean, it, it's perfect. It'd be a perfect scenario. Go drive for yourself. He goes, because we're not ready to win yet. And I said, what? He goes, we're not ready to win yet. He goes, let me tell you something. You don't ever leave a winner to go to a loser. Never. Mm. You, that never happens. You never happen. So that's why I can't go drive for myself. We're not ready to win. RCR is ready to win. I'll never, I'll never leave a winner to go to loser. And he goes, you won't either. And I'm like, well, Dale, listen, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to probably leave the winner, leave the Braves to go to a loser. And that's going to be my shot. He he grabbed me and goes, no, you won't. You don't do it. You never do it. You never leave a winner to go to a loser. You stay there till Bobby retires and you take over for Bobby. I said, Bobby's not retiring for 10 years. I said, I've got to get an opportunity before then. I mean, he's shaking. Don't do it. You can't do it. You have to stay there, right? So when I took that job, Dale was gone by then. And uh, that's all I could think of is that I left a winner to go to a loser. And I'm just like, oh, man. I remember putting on that jersey for the first time and looking at it and thinking, man, what did I do? Mm -hmm. You know, but I played in Milwaukee. I went to the World Series in Milwaukee, the last time the Brewers went to the World Series, I was on that team. So it was a special city for me. It was a special organization. And, you know, my mindset was that I was going to leave a winner, go to a loser, build it back to a winner. And, you know, we were close. We was there for almost seven years and we were on the verge of the playoffs. And, um, again, we had a new owner, uh, and we had just come off, uh, we had just come off a, a September, uh, an August where we were 20 and six. We had mm. a great August. Went into September, the last month of September, and we lost 10 out of 13 right out of the, the get-go. And I got a call uh, in Chicago, and I walk up to, you know, my Jim's uh, room, and he goes, look, we got to make a change. I said, okay, what change are we making? And he goes, well, you. I'm going, <laughs> you got to be kidding me, right? You know, no, I get, we got to, we got to make a change. So anyway, we had, we had gone from 106 losses to, you know, 20 games over 500, which was, uh, you know, pretty darn good. We had built it right back on the verge and they actually went to the playoffs that year and lost. So, um, you know, I just kept thinking all the time, you know, that it was my job. I, we're going to work hard to turn a loser into a winner. And it really didn't come into fruition until we got to Kansas city. And I'll remember in 2014, when that last out was made, the only thing I could think of was Dale, you know, we did it. Mm, we mm. turned a loser into a winner and, you know, I know you're proud of me and we did it. So what's it. And that's a great point coach. What's it take to change a culture? Because anybody who leads any organization, whether it's a college baseball team or a business or a school church, you walk in, you can feel a losing culture. I mean, it, it, it's palatable when you walk in the locker room or walk on the field. What are the intangibles that it takes 
to turn that mindset because I heard you say in an interview when you took the uh, Kansas City job, I hope we can win and I know we can win. It's just the players knowing they can win. Right. What, what's it take to make that mental shift for an organization to change? Well, the first thing you have to understand, I think more than anything else, is that if you don't have talent, you're not going to win. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know, if you don't have talent on your baseball team, you don't have talent on your football team, you're not going to win no matter. And, and really the fallacy of all professional sports is they think you should win no matter what. You know, if you don't, why is this team not winning? We don't have enough talent to win. Yeah. People don't understand that. You should just win, right? Well, we didn't have talent in 2010 when I came on. But when Dave Moore hired me in December, I went to spring training with the Kansas City Royals as a, 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 a special assignment or a, a special assistant to the general manager. So, I would go do things, whatever Dayton wanted me to do. And I would watch the big league team in, in the morning and spring training. Then I would watch the minor league players uh, in the afternoon for six weeks. And I had the opportunity to watch and see all of these young players that the Royals had just reminded me of the Blousers and the Lemkes mm -hmm. and the Justices. And I mean, a tremendous core group of young, talented players that you could envision down the road winning a championship with. So, um, you know, you have to have that talent first. Mm. So you develop them in the minor leagues till they get to the big leagues. And luckily for us, we had a group that got all there about the same time. And it's always been my experience that in Atlanta, in Milwaukee, that it takes a, a group of players about two and a half years for them to get to the big leagues, get comfortable, go through all the stuff that they have to go through before they can get to a point where they can really start to have success. So it happened in Atlanta, two and a half years, yep. two and a half years in Milwaukee before they took off. And I remember uh, we got to the two and a half year point in 13. And, um, you know, I'm thinking, okay, here we go. We had, we were at the all-star break, which is kind of the unofficial halfway point. We went into Yankee stadium. We were three games under 500 uh, on a team that was used to being 20, 30 games under 500. And I'm like, okay, we're at the two and a half year point right here. What's going to happen is we're going to go in there. We're going to sweep the Yankees. We're going to start the, the second half, uh, you know, at 500 and we're going to take off. So we go in there and, much to my dismay, they swept us. Mm. So we went into the all-star break, six games under 500. And I remember flying home. Can you get to fly home for a couple of days and just rest? And I'm thinking, well, this is a special group, but maybe it's going to take this group a little bit longer. And uh, when we came back from the all-star break to the end of 2014, we had the best record in baseball. How about that? So, yeah, we were just, you know, it was just a tremendous group that finally took off. And I think more than anything else is that what we did uh, as a group of coaches, and I told my players, look, we're going to teach these guys how to win. We're going to give them freedom to play, and we're going to give them freedom to understand how to play the game and how to win. We got to teach them how not to be selfish. We got to teach them how not to be, uh, you know, worry about their own stats. The only thing that, that, that's important is the W at the end of the day. And for two and a half years, uh, you know, we pounded it, pounded it, pounded it. And uh, I'll never forget, um, we went into the wild guard game in 2014. You know, we were battling for uh, the division, actually. We were one game back going into the last game of the season. And if we won and Detroit lost, we would have had a playoff. And we were, we were hoping for that. You know, we didn't want to have a one-game playoff against the A's. So we uh, – we ended up losing that game. Detroit won anyway. So we went into the wild card game and we were playing, like I said, Oakland. And we had a, one of our nemesis, John Lester, was pitching against us. And we, we, could, we couldn't, you know, we just couldn't beat John Lester. We just couldn't. And we got into the seventh inning and they had a three-run lead. And I'll never forget uh, our players coming in the dugout to the bottom of the seventh inning. And, and I could hear a murmur down there. They were 
all down there, and I could hear a murmur, and then it got louder, and it got louder. And Mike Moustakis and Haas and Salvi were down there, and they were all screaming, that, that's it. He's not beating us. Not tonight. This is not. He will not beat us. Not tonight. Let's go. Let's go. Let's get on base. Let's score a run. This guy will not beat us. Well, we ended up scoring two runs in the bottom of the seventh, and then didn't score anything in the eighth, tied the game up in the ninth, uh, and then I think we ended up going 12 innings before we finally won it. But that was the start of winning eight in a row. And that was the exact moment that they believed mm. that they could win. They it's knew good. up to that point, you know, they thought they could win. They thought that they could win. But in the seventh inning of the wild card game, that group all of a sudden believed that they could win. And it was no looking back. I mean, we lost the World Series that year uh, in game seven. We had the time run at third base in the ninth inning. And if it wasn't for a heroic, uh, you know, uh, job by Madison Bumgarner, we had won two World Series in a row. But, uh, you know, it was a group that, that had the freedom to play. They understood that if they, if they were daring and they took chances, they were educated chances. They knew you know, when to, when to go for it, when not to go for it. And, you know, they knew that they were backed up hundred percent by the coaching staff and it was just a freedom uh, to play the game. That was a, a, at the end of the day, just so much fun for them because all they focused on was winning. When 2015 happened and you finished it 2014, you were so close and anybody outside the game of baseball or really outside sports in general to get there one time is amazing to take the same team and get back is almost impossible. There's so many breaks that have to happen. There's so many things that have got to go your way and you're back in 2015, but yet you don't leave anybody on you finish it. When that game finished and all the festivities happened and your head hit the pillow that night, what were the emotions that you were feeling as a lifelong baseball man who now has gotten to experience a World Series win, winning a world championship as a manager? What did that feel like? Yeah, well, I, you're not going to believe it when I tell you, but, um, you, you know, we we went through 15 with a chip on our shoulder. Our guys mm. knew how close we, they came the year before. And they weren't going to let that happen again. They were so determined and so focused day in and day out. And we just ran away from it. We had the best record in the American League. Um, and we just, you know, we just had a, a phenomenal team. Um, you know, we had some real tense moments in the playoffs. You know, we were down uh, in game four, which was an elimination game in Houston. They had scored three runs uh, and had a three-run lead or a four-run lead going into, like, the the – the seventh inning or eighth inning, we tied the game up, took a lead, won it, and came back and won game five and had some tough games against Toronto to go to the World Series. But, you know, at the end of each series, you get the champagne and everybody's spraying and everybody's having a good time and jumping up and down. And, you know, in 15, I'm like, I'm not going in. You know, mm -hmm. let them have their fun. Let them enjoy it. So my coach is like, are you coming out for this? I'm like, no. I'm coming out for one, only one. And that's when we won the world series. I love it. So we got down. I'll never forget. You know, we were sitting there uh, in the 12th inning, um, you know, Haas in the ninth inning, we were down two runs, two to nothing in the ninth inning. And we ended up tying the ball game up on a great play by Eric Cosmer. We made this mad dash home and um, ended up tying the ball game. And we had a uh, runner at second base and Christian Cologne, a little, pinch hitter that we had ends up getting a base hit. And then I just remember thinking to myself, as soon as that run scored, we just won the world series, mm. you know? So I'm sitting there thinking to myself, we just won the world series because I got Wade Davis, who is the absolute best closer in the game in the bullpen, ready to come out, come in the ball game. Well, our guys kept getting hits and kept getting hits and we scored two runs, three runs, four runs. And I think we ended up scoring like five runs oh, that yeah. inning. And I'm like, I was thinking to myself, come on, somebody make it out. I want to get this thing over, right? <laughs> so please, I, I, we got enough runs. Wade's coming in. And I remember, I remember uh, Wade striking out the last hitter and hugging my coaches. 
and I wanted them on the field. I stayed back in the dugout and just to watch them and enjoy them. Right. So by the time I went out there, it was, they were, I mean, they were, mm. I mean, whipped up into a frenzy. Right. I mean, I was getting hugged and picked up and Gatorade splashes on me. And we had to go into uh, the locker room and the commissioner uh, gives you the trophy. And the, the edit was nobody spray champagne until the commissioner leaves. So don't anybody try to think you're going to get the commissioner wet. That's not the way. As soon as the commissioner walks out the door, you can bust the champagne. So the, we're all up there on national TV, me and Dayton and my owner, Mr. Glass, who, who since passed away was one of the most phenomenal people on the face of the earth. Uh, we got to give him that World Series trophy and, you know, when it was done and the commissioner walked out, I walked out and I went into my office and I sat down and I looked up and I saw Dayton sitting on the couch and we couldn't even, we couldn't even talk to each other. We just looked at each other and smiled because, you know, since 2010, when we came in, it was, I mean, there was numerous times where we'd struggled so much. He could have fired, me. Mm -hmm. you know, there was numerous times people were calling for his head, but we never doubted that this wasn't going to happen. You know, we always knew that we were going to win a championship and we just sat there and smiled. We didn't talk. We didn't, we didn't hug. We didn't high five. We just sat there while they were going nuts in there. Right. But I was absolutely worn out at that time. Mm -hmm. I just had a, I, instead of exhilaration, I had a huge sense of accomplishment. Yeah. You know, I just felt good about what we accomplished and, of course, at that time, we were we were probably drinking uh, whatever came down, some <laughs> champagne, some beer, and I don't know, there might have been some Jack Daniels in there or something. And finally, at five in the morning, the Mets got mad at us and kicked us out of the stadium, right? <laughs> we were celebrating. So by the time I got back to the hotel, I had all my family there. It was about seven o'clock, and the bus was leaving uh at 10 to catch plane back to Kansas city. And I didn't think anything about it. Nothing. We had won the world series. I was happy. We did it. That's good. Right. And I couldn't sleep. I went down to Starbucks and bought coffee for everybody. Got them up. Cause we all had to catch the plane. And I remember getting on the plane the next day and, uh, sitting in my seat and my phone rang. So I looked at it and it said, no caller ID. So I said, no caller ID. I only know two people that have no caller ID. One's Robin Yao, who's a roommate of mine in Milwaukee. And the other is Joe Torrey. So it's probably Joe Torrey calling to congratulate me for winning the World Series. So I answered the phone and said, hello. And they go, yes, uh, may I speak with Ned Yost, please? And go, this is Ned Yost. And he goes, can you please hold for a call from the President of the United States? And oh it was Barack. Gosh. Yeah, it was Barack Obama. So we sat and talked on the phone for 15 minutes. He was inviting us to the White House. And, you know, he's a White Sox fan. And we just, for 15 minutes, we just sat and, and talked on the phone. And, and that's when I first understood that we might have done something special here. Yeah. And then the next day, uh, you know, I really understood it when we had close to 900,000 people <sighs> in the parade for our championship. Uh, but it changed, uh, you know, it it changed people's lives because it'd been a generation, I think since right. 1985 yep. of fans that, uh, you know, got to witness the last world series and, you know, kids that grew up with their dads enjoying that now where the dads and had kids and now they get to enjoy it. So I never really understood the impact of winning a world championship for a small market town like Kansas city until we did it. And, mm. Um, I, I just, I just never, I never comprehended how big a deal that was. You know, and, and it's interesting, you and Dayton Moore had such a great, I mean, going back even to the Braves years of his time with the Braves, but y'all also had faith in common. What, how big was your faith in your journey as a player, in your journey as a coach, as a husband, uh, a father of your beautiful kids? What role has faith played in that journey, coach? Well, it's played a huge role for me. Um, you know, I grew up in California. Uh, my wife grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, you know, she had gone to church her whole life. I had never really gone to church. So um, 
you know, I'll never forget going to church with her because she wanted me to go to church with her and what really, you know, I did everything I could to stay awake and nod off. And, uh, you know, I remember one time I would go, I, I made a deal. This is, it shows you how, how crazy things can be. I made a, you know, a deal with God. Look, I'll go to, I'll go to our team Bible studies, but you need to, you need to let me hit 285 and 10 home runs. And, you know, that's your part of the deal. And of course that don't work. Right. So, um, you know, Sal Bando, who was our chapel leader in Milwaukee, I came back one winter and he said, have you grown any? And it, of course, you know, I'm like, Sal, I'm six one. I'm 27 years old. I don't think I'm done growing. I, I missed the whole point of yeah. what he was talking about. Right. So, you know, I kept my whole life. I kept searching for something to fill the gap in my mm. chest. Mm. Right. And I thought growing up that, you know, maybe I needed to excel at something to fill that, to fill that void. My dad was an all American football player. My cousin on my dad's side was an all American football player. He played seven years in the NFL. And here I was five, two as a freshman in high school. Mm. Right. So I ended up, playing baseball as a sophomore, played JV. I went the whole year and didn't get a hit. I was mm. 0 for 36. Next year as a junior, this never happened. I had to play J, uh, JV baseball as a junior. And I remember getting three hits as uh, an opening day. And I thought, well, at least I'm getting hits this year. And ended up my senior year, I had a growth spurt between my, my, sophomore, my, uh, my junior and senior year played varsity and made all county, all, you know, all league, all county. Um, really, I mean, I really had a great year, but I had no college offers. So I had to walk on to a junior college. And I just kept thinking, you know, for me, the only thing I want to do is play baseball. So if I can sign a contract, that's going to fill that void. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, back then, it's not like it was now where, where they televised the draft. Back then, once the draft came, you had to call the newspaper and say, hey, That's is right. anybody from the Bay Area get drafted? Well, let me look at the ticker, right? Yep. Uh, yeah, well, Ned Yost got drafted by the New York Mets. What round? In the first round. I'm like, oh, I'm signing, right? <laughs> so I'm signing, I signed, and I kept thinking, okay, this is going to fill this void. And it was real exciting for, you know, a week or two. And then you go off and you start playing. And it's like, nope, that didn't do it. Well, maybe I got to get the double A. So you get the double A? Nope, that didn't do it. Well, maybe I got to get to AAA. Nope, that didn't do it. Well, maybe I got to, if I'm a big league player, you're working hard, working hard, finally get to the big leagues for like two or three weeks, you know, it's kind of feeling better. And then boom, nope, that didn't do it. So I kept thinking to myself, well, maybe I got to become a champion. Mm -hmm. And if I can become a champion, maybe that'll fill that void. And went to the World Series in 82, and we ended up losing game seven. I'm like, man, I was so close to filling that hole. But I remember in 1995, we were uh, in Atlanta. We had been to the World Series in 91 and 92, uh, missed out in 93, had the strike in 94. And here we were, uh, you know, in game six and David Justin is the head of home run. Tommy Glavin throwing a one hit shutout through, you know, through uh, eight innings. And he's just pitching wonderfully and the phone rings answer the phone. I'm like, what, why is the phone ringing? Tommy's got a one hit shutout. He's just dealing. Bobby's on the other line. He goes, Ned Woolers is in the game. And I said, what? He goes, I know Tommy's worn out. Tommy's done. Woolers is in the game. I said, okay. Well, I hung up and I go, Woolers, you're in the game. Woolers goes, what? I go, Tommy's <laughs> done. You're in the game. Here we go. Come on, let's go. So Woolers gets up and I mean, his, you could see the vein in his neck oh. pumping, right? And he's just so excited. He's throwing a million miles an hour. And Mark didn't have a really good pickoff move to first. Oh. And Kenny Lofton was leading off, right? So I'm like, oh, if Kenny Lofton gets on, <clears throat> he's going to steal second, steal third. The game's one to, is one to nothing. They're going to tie it up. I mean, you get all these thoughts going through your head because you want that hole filled in your chest, right? Mm. And sure enough, he gets in the ball game, ball one, ball two. And I'm like, come on, we'll throw a strike. And then boom, he throws a third pitch about a foot inside. But Kenny Lofton swings at it. It's a little foul ball down the third base line. And I'm thinking, okay, well, at least the count 
is two and one. And out of nowhere, Raphael Belliard came flying like Superman, lunged and caught the ball, right? And now there's one out, and I'm thinking, that's it. Yeah, that's it. We're we're, going to win the World Series. Of course, he gets the next guy out, and the third guy hits the pop fly to Marquise Grissom. And as soon as that ball was hit, I looked up, saw the ball. I looked back, I saw Grissom. I looked up and saw the ball and started sprinting for the mound. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna be it. on that pile, right? I mean, this is I've been this was gonna really fulfill me, I think, as a person. So we have the big celebration that night and go to it, and then for like a week or two, you know, it's like you're on cloud nine, you just won the world championship, and then all of a sudden, boom, nothing. Right? Nothing. And I ended up actually after winning the world championship in 95, having the worst winter that I've ever had. I was mm. totally miserable. Totally. I mean, just totally miserable because I got nothing left. I just won the world championship. I'm like, well, you know, that's nothing. There's nothing, there's nothing left. So I ended up going to spring training. I think my kids and my wife threw a party when I left. They were glad to see me go. <laughs> you know, it was one of those. And I got to spring training and I'm sitting there. I'm just miserable. I didn't want to be there. I was, it was just terrible. And I opened up my suitcase and started, you know, throwing my clothes over there on the dresser. And I looked, there was a letter and it was a fat letter and a book on Christian marriage that my wife had been putting in my suitcase for, you know, like two years that I had yet to crack. Right. So I'm sitting there. I said, I can't deal with this right now. So I go to Go to you go to you know the workouts the next couple of days and finally I sit down and I look at this letter I'm gonna have to open this sooner or later, so I opened it up and I just thought that you know it was gonna be this letter about telling me how big a jerk I am and you know why don't you shape up and this and that well it was an 11 page letter my wife had written telling telling me how much she loves me mm-hmm. and I'm sitting there thinking man I, I don't know I don't know and then I grabbed this book on Christian marriage I opened it up. And the passage that I look at said, when, when you are married, God takes two hearts and cleaves them into one so that you two are turned into one. And I'm like, man, I don't even feel like one, mm. you know, this is, I'm, I'm, so, I'm horribly selfish. Um, you, you know, I, I don't, this is just, this is just my whole life is a mess. And I sat there for a second, all of a sudden I got on my knees and I, I said this prayer. I said, Lord, I've come to you many times asking for things, wanting things in return. You know, uh, my whole life, that's what I've done. I said, I'm coming to you right now asking for nothing but your son, Jesus, to come into my heart. Wow. And to to turn my life around. I've made a mess of my life. And I need Jesus Christ to come into my life. And from that point on, it was February 1996. I mean, it felt like a ton of bricks were lifted, were lifted off my shoulders. And that void was now gone. Mm. And now I'm like, what was that? What happened? How do I understand what just happened? And there was a Christian bookstore about two blocks down. I ran down, got my car, and then was buying books. I, I had to figure it out. And then it was such a wonderful freedom involved in this uh it was like you're scared you're going to lose it and it's yep. then you, you get to you understand look this is forever you know this is absolutely you've made a decision for christ he, now you have been born again through his spirit in your life and it, it was it was a journey now mm-hmm. right it mm-hmm. was it was now a journey and you know after like three weeks or a month, I called Deborah. I said, you need to come down or I need to talk to you about something, you know? And, and she came down. I was, she was scared. She was like, what does he want to talk to me about? And I explained this to her and our life has changed from that point. I mean, you still do stupid things and you're still selfish and you still do things. But at the end, you understand what the purpose of your life is That's about, right. that God has a plan for you. And I think that, you know, you always want to to be more faithful and you always want to be more, uh, you know, Christ-like in everything that you do. And you're always praying for it and your focus, uh, you know, is always that, but in terms of a manager, you know, it made my life so much easier because I started to understand, Hey, I have 40,000 people in the stands every single night and a million or two watching every move that I make. 
But here's the, here's the great thing about all that. I don't have to please them. I have to please one person and that's it. And if I please you, Lord, I've done my job. So it just simplified everything uh, in terms of managing. And I got to understand, I, I mean, I never could understand how a major league manager or a person that creates so much uh, criticism day in, day out with every move that you make, how can you not be a man of faith and have that job? It's just the pressure on you would just be absolutely tremendous without just turning it, you know, surrendering it. Uh, so that was the biggest part. Again, you know, I think more than anything else, God takes you on this journey right? and you're living and you're getting better. And once we started 2012, we started getting these kids. I would always get to the stadium about 1030. You know, uh, I was always there for a seven o'clock game. I'd prepare. Right. But I'd always be the first one there and I would open up the door. I would walk in the clubhouse, I'd turn on the lights, and I would start in the far locker locker uh, on the far side, and I would walk and I would pray for every one of those players mm -hmm. in that room. I'd pray for their health. I would pray for, you know, their families. I would pray that they would be able to, uh, you know, give their best effort, that they understood as a man what their, what their position was in terms of being a dad, in terms of being a, a, a role model in in, in the community. And I would pray for the community, you know, and, and this went on every single day. And I'll, I remember in 2013, when right at the end, or, or excuse me, it was 2014 and we were fighting for uh, the wild card and it was late in the year and Boston had come in and um, Boston wasn't a very good team at that time. So I expected, you know, to win at least three out of four against them. Uh, you know, to help us continue our wild card fight. And we ended up losing three out of four. I think we ended, we lost the first one, won the second, lost the third and lost the fourth on a Sunday afternoon. And I was mad. I mean, I was, I was, I was mad. I went home and I, every day, first thing I do, I'd make a cup of coffee and I had uh, two or three little Bible programs that I would read in the morning. That's how I would start my day. So I woke up that day and I was, you know, I was upset. And I started reading my Bible programs and I got halfway through them. And I said, Lord, why do you make us go through this? Why do we have to go through this? We've been faithful. You know, we, we need your help to understand why we cannot provide more enjoyment. This city deserves a team that can win. These players deserve to win, Lord. They've worked hard. We stay focused. We focused on you. Why cannot, why do we have to go through what we're going through now in order to again? When can you help us? When are you going to step out and get and bless us and help us win some baseball games? Stupid, right? So I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I hear this little voice in my head and it's like, do you know who I am? Mm. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah. Well, who am I? Where's you? created the heaven and earth and i'm like that's what you did you're god yes and he goes do you believe this thought went through my bed do you believe i have a plan for your life yes do you believe that i can make anything happen in this earth that i control everything that happens and that everything that, that happens is happening for a purpose Yes. And you believe that I have a plan for your life. Yes. And then this thought came through my head. Start acting like it. Mm. Mm. And from that moment on, it was like, Lord, you are so right. I do believe you have a plan for my life. I do believe you have a plan for this team and forgive me for not acting like it. And it changed. It just changed everything for me. I mean, just absolutely. And that's where I first understood faith, yep. you know, that that's faith that, uh, okay, Lord, I'm turning everything over to you. I understand that you've got total control over everything. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future and I'm turning it over to you. And from that point on, the anxiety, the, the ups, you know, the, the pressure to win every single day, 
was gone and we we went on and had great runs from that point isn't it funny when you spend time with somebody like ned yost you see why he was such a great guy to play for I know his time he spent with Bobby Cox was probably huge in that journey. But Coach Yost became a player's manager, a a manager that never forgot how hard it was to play the game. And he managed accordingly. And he became a leader others wanted to win for. See, leadership is not just teaching them about wins and losses. Leadership is inspiring them to want to win, even when they don't have to, even when they may not want to. And the greats like Ned Yost get it out. And I tell you what, you see why he had such a great run in the MLB. Thank you, Coach Yost, for sharing your stories, sharing your journey, and also sharing your faith with us. We are all better for it. When in our next episode, we get to sit down with Dave Ferguson. Dave is the pastor of a great church in Chicago, and Dave has come out with a brand new book. I have heard about Dave Ferguson for years, but I have never gotten to meet him. And we get to sit down and talk about five everyday ways to love your neighbor and change the world. And you are going to get so much out of our conversation about his new book called Bless. Well, if you've enjoyed this podcast, I hope you will hit pause, go leave a rating and review on iTunes or whatever platform that you listen on so others can find their way to us and then go out and be the leader that you are created to be in the space and the place that God has put you. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.